From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Understanding the Opioid Crisis. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Dr. Lindsay Stokes, an emergency physician in Albany, New York. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Lindsay Stokes. Dr. Lindsay Stokes is a practicing emergency medicine physician in Albany, New York. She writes and speaks about the intersection of faith and medicine for magazines like Christianity Today and for Christian radio stations across the country. She is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians, the mother of three young daughters, and a former who wants to be a millionaire contestant. Insert here, who did not, in fact, become a millionaire. And today, she's here with us to talk about the opioid crisis in America. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Lindsay Stokes. Thank you for having me. So let's just start at the basics. Um, What are opioids? We hear about them all the time in the news, but rarely hear a definition. And medically, what do they do to our human bodies? So opioids are a class of medications that act on opioid receptors, which are proteins that are found throughout the human body, but are primarily in the central and the peripheral nervous system. So that's your brain and your nerves, and also in the gut. And the chief effect of opioids is that they relieve pain. These medications do a couple of other things as well. For example, they decrease the motility in your gastrointestinal tract, which has a large density of opioid receptors. And they can also be used to suppress coughs. And of course, they decrease the respiratory rate and cause sedation because they have so many effects in the brain. But the primary use of opioids in the medical community is for the relief of pain because the receptor they work on, the opioid receptor, is responsible for analgesia. All right. So how, how is that different from uh, Tylenol and aspirin and morphine are all about relieving pain as well. But this is different. This is very different. So Tylenol and more and um, ibuprofen work on, on different mechanisms. Tylenol, the mechanism is actually not very well understood, but it definitely doesn't work on the opioid receptor. We know that. Um, and then ibuprofen works by preventing inflammation, and inflammation causes pain. So these, uh, these medications work specifically on the opioid receptor, which is the receptor that uh, is it's throughout your body, on your nerves, that essentially um, when it's not filled, you have pain. When it's filled, you don't have pain. So this, this, um, these medications fill those receptors, and, and that causes analgesia. Almost every day we hear a news story about uh, what's happening in America. So help us get sort of the big picture of understanding what opioid addiction is like in our country, how prevalent it is. And it seems like there are some parts of the country where there is uh, a greater incidence than in other parts of the country. And I, I don't know if you can explain that, but talk about it. Absolutely. So the CDC estimates that right now in America, there are over 2 million people that are currently addicted to prescription opioids and another five to 600,000 that are addicted to heroin. And of course, that's a huge number. In 2017, we saw 47,000 people die from opiate overdoses. And we're currently seeing another 130 people die every day in the United States from opioid overdoses. And you're right that this is everywhere, um, and that this it tends it tends to be that throughout the years the the sort of hot spots in the United States have moved. When the opioid overdose crisis started out, 
in the 1990s, it was really the West Coast that was seeing, um, you know, more addictions, more abuse, more deaths. And it's shifted. And in the last couple of years, it had shifted to the East Coast. The area that I work in uh, was one of the highest for prescription prescription opiate overdoses um, in the country in 2016, but it's already shifted back. And now it's we're seeing the Midwest um, right now is the hotspot. For example, in Virginia, West Virginia had the most overdose deaths per capita in 2017, and Pennsylvania had the most overdose, overdose deaths overall. But every state in the nation is seeing a rise in opiate use, in abuse, and in deaths. So no matter where you are, this is still close to home. Uh, You used the word prescription. So I'm assuming that not all uh, addiction, opioid addiction, begins with prescriptions, but apparently a significant percentage does. Is that right? Very significant percentage. The CDC right now is estimating that 75% of opioid addicts start by using prescription medications, prescription opioid medications. Those aren't necessarily ones that were prescribed to them for a legitimate use. Often they are stolen or they're prescribed to them for something medical, but then they begin using them recreationally. Um, but it is prescription opiates that begin most, um, most opiate addictions in this country right now. So what's the history of this in terms of opioids? We've had opium, we've had morphine around for generations. Um, right. Is, are these opioids, are, are they new to this generation? We have some new opiates, um, but you're right. Opiate addiction has been around since essentially since man discovered the poppy plant, which was around 3400 BC and they it was the Sumerians, they called it the joy plant. So this is definitely not new. Um, morphine, which is one of the most common medications that I use in my practice, has been around since the 18th century. And these medications have always been highly addictive, and they remain so. But the opioid crisis that we have today really started in the 1990s because we started seeing prescription opioids um, being pushed by pharmaceutical companies who are reassuring the medical community that patients would not become addictive, addicted to these. So these were things like oxycodone and hydrocodone, which came about uh, or, or which really came into their own in the 1990s. So that's when we started seeing addiction to um, the prescription opioids at very high rates. And throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s, the number of deaths from prescription opioid overdoses were rising every year, and those medications were becoming more and more prevalent in medical practice. And then around 2010, once it had become very apparent that the oxycodone and hydrocodone were much more addictive than we had been led to believe, um, though we started changing things about how we prescribed those medications and how we, um, and we put, put laws into effect to essentially address this problem that we had created um, and at that time, though, the people who were already addicted to prescription opiates had to turn to something that was more readily available, which was heroin. So in 2010, we saw this um, spike in addictions to heroin um, and a spike in deaths to heroin. And then unfortunately, right now we're in the third phase of this, uh, which is the arrival of fentanyl and carfentanyl on the scene. Car- fentanyl and fentanyl are both uh, synthetic opioids, which can be created either legitimately, we use fentanyl sometimes in the hospital, or more frequently, they can be created illegitimately, and they're used to cut into heroin to make it more potent so it sells better. Um, So those, because they are such potent medications, potent drugs, um, those lead to a lot more deaths 
Um, and that's, that's what we're seeing right now. So the, the spike that we've seen just in the last two to three years in opiate, over, in opiate overdose deaths have been primarily due to the fentanyl and carfentanyl and other synthetic opioids that are now, uh, now being introduced into our society. Does what's happening in the public, particularly in, in the press, has that curbed it at all? I mean, my impression is that many physicians are more reluctant now in their prescriptions, which raises another whole question and issue. But is the publicity, is the changing in the writing of initial uh, narcotics prescriptions, is that changing enough to make a difference in terms of addiction and the outcome? So, unfortunately, we're not seeing a difference in the um, addiction rate or in the addiction deaths, and that's that's the unfortunate thing. Um, and it, it seems to be a case of we sort of got the ball rolling with prescription opioids back in the 1990s, and then now we're trying to change our practices, but we're, we've kind of already snowballed um, and things are out of control. So, um, you know, while I certainly... Uh, I, I think you're right. Most physicians now are terrified of prescribing opiates because we're afraid of uh, of causing these addictions. This is a you know a horrible situation that we're in, and we don't want to be a part of harming people. Certainly, so. Um, but now that now that we are here, now that we have heroin and fentanyl and carfentanyl, and so many um, people struggling with addictions already out there. We're not seeing a decrease, um, certainly, in the amount of people becoming addicted and the amount of people dying from overdoses, um, even though we are trying to put measures in, in place. So just in the last couple of years, we've seen um, a 30% increase in opiate overdose deaths. Um, and uh, in large cities, we're seeing uh, opiate overdoses grow by 54%. So um, not only is it still growing, but it's still growing rapidly. All right, let's let's go back for a moment, uh, not to the person or persons who are um, already experiencing an addiction, but someone who is not. How is someone likely to get into this? Is it an injury or a surgery or what, what's the beginning of the process that ends so with such difficulty? Right, that's a that's a great question. So um, I I want to be clear that that. Opioid addiction, like all other addictions, is it's not generally something that somebody gets into accidentally. The majority of people who develop opioid addictions um, develop it because they're using a substance for recreational purposes. So there are certainly some cases um, where a patient is given something like Vicodin, which is oxycodone, and they take it for a legitimate injury or a surgery or something along those lines. And then when they stop taking it, they find that they're having withdrawal symptoms. And there have definitely been documented cases where um, patients are given a medication by their physician, and then even when the acute injury, which they were taking the medication for, is over, their uh, physicians continue to prescribe them that addictive medication, and their addiction begins that way. That, however, is the minority. So the majority of the, the addictions that we're seeing out there are not patients who, for example, had surgery on their ankle and their, uh, their addiction began that way from, you know, medications that they got from their doctor. The majority of the addictions that we see are patients who 
may have had Vicodin left over from an injury that they had previously, or who, you know, in a lot of cases in the, the young adults that we're seeing, it was a family member had it in the, the medicine cabinet. And they began using it recreationally as a coping mechanism, as a means of escape in the same way that other generations have used alcohol and marijuana and other drugs. Um, and their addictions began that way. So what happens is the first time um, anyone uses an opiate, the uh, when used appropriately, of course, when, when a prescription opiate is used appropriately, it takes away pain. When overused, the next thing that happens is a sense of euphoria. Um, and beyond that, there's a, there's a sedation that happens. And of course, as I said, if this is being used as a coping mechanism, that's exactly what um, somebody wants. Um, so at first, this uh, substance might produce a euphoric feeling. It triggers a large amount of dopamine in the reward centers of the brain. But then the, the next few times that it's used and after that addiction starts occurring when the act of using a substance takes over those reward centers and increases the urge to consume more and more and more of the substance in order to achieve that same rewarding effect. And then at some point it slips into uh, a different phase where you can't be normal without taking it. And that's how, that's when addiction is, has truly occurred is, is when you need to take the, the substance just to feel normal. Yeah, that is really helpful because I think there are some people who have uh, medical procedures who are now actually fearful of taking the prescription that they receive and instead suffer the pain because they have a fear that it'll result in an addiction. You're saying if it's appropriately done, that's less likely to happen, right? Absolutely. And this is always something that I encourage patients to have a discussion with uh, their doctor about. This is, this is because of what's happened in our country and because essentially, you know, and I, I wasn't practicing in the 1990s, but I still feel guilty about the fact that this was started by doctors and started by the pharmaceutical companies. This is something you should talk to your physician about. If you're having a procedure or if you have an injury where you're prescribed opiate medication, there are ways to take that to drastically reduce your uh, likelihood of becoming dependent on those medications. For example, you can take half a pill and your pain will be helped, it might not go all the way away, but you're not going to become addicted by taking half of a dose. Or you can take the dose as prescribed by your physician and end it. That's the important thing is that the, the prescription ends eventually because these medications are for acute pain. They're for things that are happening, um, you know, that are injured or, or that are injured or, or cut essentially by surgeons. Um, they're not meant for chronic pain. It's not something you should be on long term. But when used appropriately, it's not something, honestly, that you should become addicted to um, because that's, it's, that's not how we prescribe them um, at this point. Um, and now doctors are so very aware of this um, that they are very cautious. So it is something that most physicians like to have a discussion with about their, uh, with their patients about. So um, it is something that, that they should talk to them about. As an emergency medicine physician, you are seeing people in the crisis mode of this. So, so what's been your experience uh, with those who are addicted and in crisis when they arrive in the emergency room? Um, boy, so this is going to be a, a painfully honest answer, and I apologize if it hits close uh, to home for anyone. Um, but as a, an ER doctor, honestly, the majority of people that I deal with who are addicted to opioids 
um, fall into one of three categories. The first is that I see patients who are coming in for help. Um, the ER in the hospital that I work at is the it's the gateway to our rehabilitation centers. So I see a lot of people coming into the emergency department because they've been struggling with an opioid addiction and they need help. Um, and we have ways to help them detoxify from these medications, to help them go through the withdrawal process, which is a very difficult process. Um, and the emergency department is the gateway for that. So, so I deal with these people who are literally in the throes of the addiction, um, who, who have decided that they want to, they want to turn things around and get help. Um, and so I, they're, they're sort of the first class. The second class of patients that I see is I see patient, patients who have overdosed. Um, people are rushed into the emergency department all the time on a daily basis because they have overdosed on an opiate. Um, and in these situations, um, I see patients that are anywhere from you know, completely healthy to near death um, because overdoses are, they are fatal if um, not resuscitated quickly enough. Um, and we have a lot of means nowadays of resuscitating patients um, out in the field, so in their homes or wherever they happen to overdose. Um, and because of that, some patients, by the time they get to me, they're, they're back to normal and they feel fine, they wanna leave. Um, but other patients who are not gotten to very quickly um, can often be near death or actually dead, and one of my jobs is to resuscitate them and, and try to get them back. Um, so that's sort of the, the third class, um, or sorry, the second class. And the third class of patients that I see dealing with opioid addictions in the emergency department, and this is a very unfortunate one, is I see people who are trying to get opiates from me. Um, I see patients that are doing what we call drug seeking or doctor shopping, which is how we describe patients that are coming to ERs and urgent cares or bouncing around from primary care, doctor to primary care, trying to get prescriptions for opioids for non-medical uses. And that takes up a lot more of my time than I, any, any ER doctor wants, um, surely. Um, but uh, but it, is, it is big. And that's, that's one of the major things that we do is try to discriminate who is having real pain, who has an acute injury, who needs an opioid, and who is just trying to get drugs from us. Is an overdose, it, how difficult is that to, to diagnose? And does someone need to be a trained physician to be able to tell if that's what's happening? So, no, um, it, it's not difficult to diagnose, uh, although you might be wrong if you, if you diagnose it. Um, the problem with opioid overdoses is that the main um, symptom is that the patient stops breathing and then becomes unresponsive. There are certainly other physical findings that point you in the direction of this being an opioid overdose. For example, um, during an overdose, um, the opiates cause the pupils of the eye to become very constricted and what we call pinpoint pupils. They're very small. Um, and that's one sign that when the patient comes in and they're unresponsive, that's one sign that we look for to sort of try to determine whether or not this was an opioid overdose. However, if you're not used to looking at everybody's pupils, if you don't stare into people's eyes all day long, it's sometimes hard for a layperson to determine whether or not those, those are contracted or not. So the, the primary um, symptom of an opioid, opioid overdose is that the person stops breathing. Their respiratory rate decreases until um, if they're overdosed enough, it will decrease to zero. Um, and they'll become unresponsive. And so the, the um, lack of oxygen is what kills people in opioid overdoses. Um, and in general, what we tell people is if you see someone who uh, you believe 
is having an opioid overdose, call 911 and begin rescue breathing because no matter what you do, if you're wrong, you're not going to hurt them by trying to breathe for them. In the emergency room and in some ambulances and with the police, Narcan is used. You, you referred to that uh, in your Christianity Today article as grace in a syringe. Well, we need to learn more. So what is Narcan? How does that work? Narcan is a medication. The brand, uh, Narcan is its brand name. It also goes by the name of naloxone. And it's what we call an opioid antagonist. Um, so as I described earlier, you have receptors throughout your body that bind these opioids, and that's how they cause their effects. Naloxone knocks those opioids off the receptors um, and replaces them. So uh, it temporarily can reverse the effects of the opioid of the opioids. So if they've caused a person to stop breathing when they're, this person is given Narcan, uh, they'll start breathing again. And essentially, um, when somebody has taken too much, either too much or too potent of an opioid, and it has saturated their opioid receptors to the point that they've stopped breathing or they've become unresponsive, the Narcan molecules will boot the opioid molecules off, and their effect will be stopped within minutes. Um, or even seconds, depending on how it's administered. So we p see people coming into the emergency department who are completely somnolent. They're not responding to anything. They're not breathing on their own. And a few seconds after we push naloxone through their IV, they're awake, they're sitting up, they're often in agony because not only does Narcan or naloxone replace the opioids on the receptors of the brain, it replaces them everywhere in the body. So instead of the analgesia and euphoria that they were experiencing with the opiates, Naloxone essentially puts them into immediate withdrawal, which is an incredibly painful experience. Do all hospitals have this on hand? I mean, recently, I was, not recently, it was a year or so ago, I visited someone in a 10-bed uh, rural hospital, but I think they, they had emergency uh, physicians there, or at least they had others serving in that way. Would they typically have this available? Absolutely. I work in a three-bed emergency hospital. <laughs> one of one of the sites that I work in, um, of course, yes, we, we have it everywhere. It's not only in every emergency department, it's in every ambulance. Most um, In my area of the country, it's in most police cars and uh, fire trucks because um, it's, it's so critical to get it to a patient who has overdosed within minutes that we try to get it to, um, you know, the first responders or the patients, the people that are going to be laying hands on these patients first. Um, so our police officers, our firefighters, our paramedics are all trained at using it. They're all very good at using it. Um, and it's, uh, it's in our, our ears as well. We also in our departments um, have kits that we actually give to when patients come in overdosed, we give a kit to whatever family member comes in with them with naloxone nasal spray in it to send them home with because, you know, should the overdose happen again, we want them to be able to rescue their loved one. I'm going to ask you a question that I want to answer, but I won't because I've got my own opinion on this. Um, sure. There are some, I am sure, who would say, I think incorrectly, that when you do that, when you give the kit or when you have it available, in a police car, that you are actually reducing the risk and encouraging people to uh, abuse an opioid. Explain why that's not true. So there have been multiple studies that have shown that having naloxone nearby does not increase the risk-taking behavior of opiate users. Um, and the reasons are various. 
But the primary one is that by the time someone is in the throes of an opiate addiction, they're not doing it just for fun. They're not pushing heroin just for fun. They're doing it essentially to treat their medical condition, which is their addiction to heroin. So having a rescue medication nearby, um, one of the, the former users that I interviewed um, said that essentially it was like having a fire extinguisher nearby. You're not, you don't have this rescue medication nearby because you know, you, you think you're going to overdose, you have it there just in case. And essentially he said, you know, I, I, I don't have a fire extinguisher in my house because I want my house to burn down. I have it there just in case this, this, this is a medication that saves people's lives when they get into trouble. They're not then trying to get into trouble knowing that they've got this, uh, this life preserver on hand. Um, there, these are people generally who are in um, a very deep, dark addiction that has taken control of them. It's not just at this stage a decision to kind of play around with opiates. There are different estimates, but somewhere between 350,000, 400,000 churches in the United States, which means there are a lot of churches that have people who are either directly themselves or their families are dealing with uh, opioid addictions. So what, what can churches do? And, and what should they be doing? Absolutely. So the prevalence of the opioid crisis right now is at such a state that every church in the country is going to have either someone in their pews who is addicted, maybe that they don't even know about, or, or someone whose family is struggling with this. And one of the ways that churches are, um, are addressing this is one through um, addiction ministries, things like uh, Celebrate Recovery um, is huge. The 12 Steps um, is huge. Opiates Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, those um, sorts of programs are, have, uh, those are, are life-changing for people who are struggling with addictions like this. Um, but another way that churches can come alongside people who are struggling with um, these addictions is that they can be providers of not only naloxone, but on training to use naloxone to address um, opiate overdoses and, and save, save lives. You know, it took churches uh, in America a long time to deal with issues that related to alcohol and do much better today um, with being helpful for people who have, uh, or alcoholics have, have addiction there. Do you think there, it, it, this sounds like a strange way to say it, but is this easier because it's out in the news and, and because churches have a history of dealing with other addictions, maybe they can more readily uh, tackle the issue. I would hope so. I hope so as well. Um, I think that because it is so prevalent in the media, because this is something everyone knows about, um, I, I believe that the church is actually doing a decent job in, in responding to these. Um, I know my church um, locally has multiple compassion ministries um, for people who are struggling um, with this sort of addiction. Um, and I think that, I think we should even step it up a, a bit. This is, this is a place where the love of Christ, the love of a community can make an enormous difference in whether or not a person lives or dies. And the idea of that is huge. Um, I think that this is something that um, with just, you know, a few things that we might already have the resources for, for example, we have plenty of alcoholics, uh, you know, uh, um, ministries that uh, uh, help people with other substance uh, use disorders. 
to change that a little bit to help patients who are people who are um, struggling with um, opiate uh, abuse, that's not hard. Um, and then on top of that, to be able to provide um, naloxone is, is something that the majority of states in the nation allows third parties to do. So we can actually provide naloxone, naloxone training, um, overdose uh, identification and um, overdose assistance for most lay people within churches. I'm trying to think of a typical church and, and how they could address this. Um, for example, the, the two obvious alternatives are to do things within the life of the church. So it could be addressed in a sermon or there could be programs that are made available. And the other is through referral to community programs and community assets. Is it is it both? Is it either or? Or should the church, you know, what should the church do? It's certainly both. Um, so the one of the gentlemen that I interviewed um, for the article that I wrote for Christianity Today about um, opioid addiction, um, one of them was talking about how the opposite of addiction is community. Um, so the church, one of the primary roles that the church can play in uh, assisting patient or assisting people who have opioid addictions is to be the the hands and feet, to be the community that they need um, to recover from their addiction. But there are going to be a lot of things that you know your your average medium sized church in America is not going to be able to do. Um, a church is not going to be able to help a person withdraw from opiates, which is often the first step. Um, so it's it's important to have at least resources on local referral centers or local um, opiate uh, withdrawal centers. Um, we use at our hospital a medication called Suboxone, um, which helps people transition essentially from, uh, from heroin abuse to, um, and essentially allows them to withdraw slowly over weeks to months instead of over a day, which is uh, again, very painful. Um, and so our church refers people to the local center, um, and we have a, a, a relationship with them. Um, but it's also important to then stand beside them during that time to um, be their accountability partners, to have people checking in on them, to have people helping them, to have people letting them know that they're not alone, and to know within our church that we don't stigmatize this, that we, we understand that this is as much a problem as other substance abuse issues. It's as much a problem as every other sin that this is something we can help them through because we're sinners and we need Christ and so do they and let's do it together. Well, you've just introduced topic of faith. So let me ask you some questions there. Um, you know, often I and I suppose others talk about how people experience God in their workplace. And it's different depending on what the vocation may be. So how, how do you experience God as an emergency room physician? You know, um, well, for a lot of my colleagues, and especially for those who are not followers of Christ, I think the ER is a very unforgiving place. But for me, the emergency department is a place where grace is just so evident um, in a in a heartbreaking and glorious way. Um, I don't know in this modern world that there are many places where humanity is more raw and more real than in the emergency department. Um, you know, no one, no one dresses up to go to the ER. No one is having a good day when they're in the emergency department. No one in the ER is Instagram ready. No one looks good. Um, but the patients that I'm seeing in, the, in my department, they're in pain. 
they're naked, they're afraid, they're angry, they're often very mean, um, even though we're trying to help them. And for those of us that have to deal with that on a daily basis, I think it's easy and probably inevitable for most of us to kind of look at this screaming, ugly mass of humanity and sort of give up. Um, but as a Christian, I can walk into the ER um, and know two things. First of all, I know that humanity is broken, so it's not that much of a surprise to me when I see it firsthand. And second, I know that Christ has redeemed that brokenness. And that allows me to walk in and say, Lord, how can I come alongside what you're doing in the lives of my patients? And in most cases, God in the emergency department is, it's, it just gives me the grace to not scream back. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, he, he allows me to practice competent, compassionate medicine. Um, although, honestly, very occasionally I've, I've felt a leading, which I cannot attribute to anything other than the Holy Spirit, that has allowed me to diagnose a disease that I wouldn't have even looked for otherwise. Um, so God, in my emergency department, looks like me not being driven crazy by uh, a lot of patients who are often very hurt and not speaking kind things. Um, but uh, it also just looks like, you know, recognizing what humanity is and being very, very thankful that there is a God who loves us anyways. After 12-hour shifts, you must be physically absolutely exhausted. Does it spiritually exhaust you as well and emotionally? Absolutely. Oh, goodness, yes. Um, most, most days, I, um, I actually chose to work at a hospital that's one hour away from my house because I need the drive home to just pray. I just, I need, I, I don't listen to the radio on the way home. I don't do anything else. I literally, I get in my car and I pray the whole way home. I generally keep a list of the patients that I, um, that I saw. I tend to, I like to pray for my patients um, on the way home. And then I just need to kind of give everything up uh, to, to Jesus on the way home. I, um, you know, as I said, people are not kind in the emergency department. If you, if anybody who's listening has been kind to their ER doctor, thank you, because it's very, it's very uncommon. Um, most of the patients that I see are angry because they've been waiting for a long time. They're in pain, they're scared, and that uh, produces a lot of behavior that um, wouldn't be acceptable anywhere else um, in, in society. Um, so often I'm actually hurt when I get into the car. I'm, you know, emotionally kind of beat up a little bit and so I need to get into into my car and drive and pray and uh and let you know Christ heal my heart before I get home and take it out on my family we'll count today as thank you thank you for doing this for so many people <laughs> the good that you do and and you you have such great expression of hope so let's go back with the last question and that is do you have hope for this opioid crisis in America I do. Absolutely. I, I think the hope, you know, it starts with the fact that we've recognized what's going on. We recognize the fact that this is, is, this is killing people unnecessarily, that we started it, that um, it's essentially been perpetuated by a stigma because as we have, you know, walked through the early years saying, calling people addicts, calling people drug users, that sort of thing, um, and and shaming people for using it, we didn't. We weren't helping them. We were we were stigmatizing people and uh, and sort of just making the situation worse. So we're in a point. We're in a position right now where we've recognized um, just how bad things are. 
Um, and again, as I said, it is getting worse. Um, the, the rates are growing, the deaths are rising, um, and, um, and we're, we're in a really tough spot right now. My hope for it, though, is as in everything, my hope is in Christ. And I think that the, one of the, the biggest things that could turn this scenario around is the church. I think we have a huge role to play in what's going on in our communities, because as I said, this is happening in every single town in America. This is happening in your town. It's happening in your church. Um, and, and the church itself, the Christian church in America is um, a point where anyone could come and with the right knowledge, with the right resources, which I don't think would take that much for even a small church to get a hold of. Um, with with those, you could you could save a life. You can you can change the direction that this this country is headed um, in terms of opioid deaths and dependence and and abuse. Um, so my hope is that the church will take even more steps forward. I think a lot of churches have started standing up and saying this is something we want to address in our community. But my hope is that even more uh, national Christian organizations, even more local churches will stand up and say that this is something that we're going to be the touch people for this. We want people in our community to know that they can come to us and that we're going to, first of all, accept them and not tell them that they're awful people for being addicted. And second of all, that we're going to be the community that they need to get clean from these medications, to break free from these addictions. And third, that we will be the ones that support them so that they don't relapse because relapse is, is the most deadly time. That's when people die. It's when they've been free of this drug for a period of time and then they go back and they use the same amount but their body is not habituated to it and they die. So the way that we prevent people from relapsing is with community. Um, and so my hope is that the church can, can take even more steps forward and be, be the, the savior, essentially, that, that we need in this crisis. Our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Lindsay Stokes, an emergency physician in Albany, New York. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Dr. Stokes. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.